0: Lord, thank you this morning that we're coming together for your word and we want to learn by it and grow by it and have it put into effect so that it makes a change in us and just compels us and moves us forward to, to do the next best thing. We pray for thy kingdom's sake. Amen. So we're going to do Nehemiah today, the book of Nehemiah. Let's call this lesson, A Big Beautiful Wall and a Mosaic Reset. Okay? A Big Beautiful Wall. That's what Trump used to say about the wall down on the border he said said we're going he said we're going to build a big, beautiful wall you know <laughs> yeah. Nehemiah's a big, beautiful wall and a mosaic reset. That's our lesson for today. <clears throat> Great book Nehemiah um, you you may know that uh, I don't know if this came up last time, but you know Nehemiah and Ezra were t- were one book at, at one point uh, you know before. They made divisions in the Bible that weren't originally there in the Old Testament, like, like the 1st and 2nd Chronicles and 1st and 2nd Samuel. So Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. Um, and the main emphasis of the, of both books, really, of both Ezra and <coughs> Nehemiah, and we know that, uh, Justin did Ezra, uh, Ezra a few weeks back, um, the main emphasis of both books is building a wall. That both folks on. know. Uh, Ezra's wall, the law of God, that it was his mission to teach, erected a spiritual boundary between Israel and all other people. So Ezra, with his focus on teaching in the law, was a spiritual wall, whereas Nehemiah's wall was the physical wall that separates the people of God from their enemies, the unclean Gentiles. It's interesting, too, I was thinking, just as I sort of read that quote from uh, one of the commentators, that, you know, you see even in the book of Revelation at, at the end, and Certainly don't let like to get too bogged down in the details of Revelation because it is apocryphal, uh, genre and people have done all kinds of crazy things with it. But it is interesting that it does make at least a passing reference to the fact that you have the people within the city of Jerusalem and outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and, you know, all the unclean things. So whatever all that means, it's just that element of distinction and separation has been intact all along. No, no less so certainly in this book. Here that we're going to read in Nehemiah. In God's uh, righteous rule over his kingdom, he intended that Israel would be separate and distinct. Okay? A, A peculiar people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. And if you recall, that distinction was highlighted in every area of life. What are some of the things maybe that you, some of you might recall, some of the practices, some of the rituals that reinforce this idea of separation and distinction in the daily life of the Israelites, you'll probably have to go back in your head to Leviticus. And well,
1: all of Israel was circumcised. All of men were circumcised.
0: Yeah, they were circumcised. Although they weren't the only, uh, circumcision did not begin with, uh, Israel. Um I don't know why it was used prior to that, but it became, um it became a practice. I thought yes. It
1: was, in other cultures, it was a, a distinction of the, of a priestly class. Could be. Or something like that. Yeah, maybe in it was. Israel, everybody was. You know, yeah.
0: People. I'll take your word for it. I don't know. I don't know what they used other ones for. I just I just know that, you know, it came about with Abraham, yeah. Sabbath keeping. Yeah, Sabbath keeping, right? That separate day that was set apart. What else in the daily life, like every single day you would see things all the time, constant reminders of the distinction? Yes. They had
1: dietary restrictions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You couldn't couldn't wear mixed clothes. That's right.
0: You couldn't mix fabrics. You couldn't mix, uh Yeah. You yeah, had no intermarrying, you couldn't mix foods, you couldn't mix mar- uh, marriages. There were uh, the plantings, you can't plant this seed next to that seed. You had clean and unclean things and bodily fluid and all this stuff that was constantly reminding you. Exactly. Everything was just, just, God built in this reminder all the time to remind his people that you ought to be a separate and distinct people for me. You know, yeah, Mark?
1: I think one of the... Very constant things was the washings that they had to practice to come back to the market. They had to wash Sure. Them. Yeah. Well, they even had like moral obligations to each other. Like if your ox gorged somebody, yes. you, then you're responsible. Yeah. You know, probably other cultures, they'd be like, F.O. Yes, so what?
0: <laughs> you know? I, don't some, it's, I don't know. There are some things similar in the uh, in the, the surrounding Mesopotamian area of that day. So a lot of the moral codes are very similar. The way the, the Ten Commandments were set up is very, there was nothing unique about the structure of the Ten Commandments that was very common. Uh, the, the Code of Hammurabi Hammurabi was, was similar to that. There were lots of agreements made between uh, overseers of land and their people and they would, they would promise to make provision for them. In return, they would seek their loyalty and all that kind of thing. So it was set in that, what they used to call that, that vassal, suzerain-vassal treaty yeah, I see format. I question. Because when you were talking about I started thinking about the separation mm-hmm. in the temple. Oh yeah. The other ancient civilizations have that. They did. They had that that similar type of holy of holies as well. Yep, lots of the lots of the ancient Mesopotamian that area wasn't. I mean, that was that was people's culture. Just like so, we have in our culture, you know, there's a lot of things we have in common with you know other religions, right? Um, And and so this is why people tend to say at times, well, you know, all religions are the same. You know, I got this. I got this. really neat uh, text from my nephew down in Florida. He was here once and I've been trying to encourage him in the faith and share some things with him and talk with him and he told me in his philosophy of religion class, he's, he was his studying of Islam brought him to his knees. He said that the, the beauty of these people's devotion and the way that they glorify God, he says, is, you know, and the things that they do in the rituals and, you know, why can't Christian people be more like that in a variety of things? And so, and so I just had to carefully sort of walk through that minefield and say it's, yeah. If you, if you praise God anywhere we see beauty, you know, we see devotion and all those things, but then I said, but you have to remember there is a distinction, there's that word again, to be made. You know, Jesus said those who worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so it's, it's easy to let, so it's good that we see those elements and we see the beauty of them and we, and I also totally pointed out a number of things that we see in Christianity because I'm sure when they, when they shared Islam with Him, they didn't share, you know, some of the the horrors of Islam, right? So, uh, but, you know, other people have said, oh, I think all religions are the same. And the reason is a lot of religions have good deeds. You know, they emphasize on good deeds. They emphasize on prayer. They emphasize justice. They emphasize, you know, not oppressing the poor. Why? Because it's human nature. We know. We have the image of God in us. You're not supposed to do those things. Mm-hmm. The image of God in us is such that we know injustice is not fair. We do it anyway. And <clears throat> you know, oppression is wrong. We do it anyway. So I think that it's, it shouldn't strike us as too unusual that there's a lot of things in common. But So God does all these things to constantly remind them of distinction. And, and this wall, then, is in keeping with that same emphasis, right? God has not changed. And we're going to review a few examples of the practices that the Jews were to keep in place now that they're back in Jerusalem, a small number of them anyway. But it's always important to remember, nothing has changed about God's plan. It doesn't matter that exile has happened, all the things that have happened, the ruin, the devastation. God's plan has not changed. There is still going to be distinction. There's going to be a separate people. There's going to be, this comes up again in Peter. Right? Uh, even in Peter in a, in a sort of a symbolic way, each of us are, are living stones being built up into the house that is God. So nothing changes, but we do continue to see throughout the history of God's people these movements in and out of God's plan and God just constant, because remember we're dealing with gods this is how god said he's this is what my kingdom is this is what it means for my kingdom uh so the book of nehemiah is really a, a memoir it's not it's not so much an autobiography uh or or story of just you know his experience only it's it, it's a. he's describing the events that he observed in sort of that first person uh um, account of what god was doing at that time and it's written in the, same, post-ex- for the you know, same post-exilic time frame as Ezra, about 13 years after Ezra. You recall that um, <coughs> Justin had reviewed that decree of King Cyrus, right? What was that? You recall that? What was the decree of King Cyrus that was prophesied way back before King Cyrus came along? I think 800 years before Cyrus it was prophesied. Just
1: to send the people back to
0: the land. Yeah. Yeah, he granted a decree that said that some of the people could go back into Jerusalem. A Persian king, you know, a Babylonian king, uh, allowing that to happen was, was, you know, certainly unheard of. And so Nehemiah is just this sort of exiled Jew in high office in the Persian Empire, right? He's a cupbearer. Now, the cupbearers, you know, was to taste and make sure there wasn't poison in the cup to kill the king. But so that had to be a very highly trusted person. So it was also the case the cupbearers were quite often advisors to the king. They are very close to the king. Okay, so same same here with Nehemiah. And we'll see that, his wisdom as a governor and his entire zeal for God and in, in, in God's covenant people. And Nehemiah's an amazing guy. You know, it's been great studying this. And good to be able to come together, all of us, and talk about it because is just this really wild, unique dude that just shows up in the middle of the return from exile. And he's an unusual guy. You know, he really is this very forceful, powerful, uh, zealous, prayerful um, man. And there must have been a fascinating to know. And so we see in chapter 1 that Nehemiah had received word about the status of the returned exiles in Jerusalem and what was going on there. And we know from the first couple of verses that, that the place was in ruins. The wall was broken down. The gates were destroyed by fire. And he was, he was, he was pretty shook up about this in verse four of chapter one. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And that was his response to the special place that God had chosen. So you already begin to see the heart of Nehemiah, what it's like. Because this isn't just the fact, yes, we would all, God forbid if this building sort of burned down or something, you know, we would Morning and, and all that kind of stuff, but this, this means something very special, right? This is God's, this is God's place, the, the place where He had set His name, the place where He had set His covenant to take place. Now, in verse six, um, he says, I, I, pr- "I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which have sinned against you." And in verse eight, he says, "Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying." If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place where I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Very interesting in that, isn't it? It says, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. Well, so this is where we get confused with the language of heaven, as if it's its actual place. Heaven is not an actual place. Heaven is where the kingdom and the rule of God is. There is no geographical place called heaven. It doesn't have a, a boundary. It doesn't have any of that. Okay? Heaven is the place where God's full presence, knowledge, will, everything is done. It's actually other dimensional. It's it's here. What version are you
1: reading?
0: This is uh, the ESV.
1: Okay.
0: Oh, was it saying yours?
1: Farthest horizon. What's that? Farthest horizon. Yeah.
0: So the point being... From everywhere, I'm gonna bring them back.
1: Yeah. Doesn't matter where they
0: are, and they're gonna be sort of scattered far and wide. Yes,
1: uh, because it says there. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back. Hmm? Can we assume that they did come back to him? They did realize what they had done, and the reason he scattered them, and then they decided we, we've got to you know, come back to God. <coughs>
0: well, yeah. I mean, we see Nehemiah making the prayer, and that's that's the beginning and i'm sure there were other people we know that daniel had we we know that daniel had made intercession for god's people uh jeremiah certainly did jeremiah prophesied you know what would come about so it's not that the whole people did we're going to see that eventually yeah. they come back That's and do quite a,
1: quite
0: a yeah it was a small number that came back to jerusalem i forget exactly what the numbers were yeah. um, 8 verse 211 says though you serve um They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So he's planning on going to see the the king, right? He says, now I was cupbearer to the king. So the old covenant, right, completely neglected by the Jews so many times that ultimately they were exiled, as God had promised, way back. Nothing has changed. But it, and so that Old Covenant becomes the basis for Nehemiah's prayer, who longs to see the covenant fulfilled. Right? So he, he knows the Old Covenant. Here he is years and years and years after Moses. He knows what the Old Covenant, he knows what the Mosaic Covenant was. He knows how God covenanted with his people. I, I was thinking, I was reading this, what, what might our own New Covenant saturated prayers sound like? Right, so... Did you ever pray in such a way that you're sort of reminding God of his promise as you seek to keep covenant with you? You Ever pray that way? I mean, what what might that a prayer look like? It's like that. So you see the very specifics he took from here, right? He took the very specifics. He says, remember the word that you commanded Moses. I will scatter you among peoples, but if you return, right? So now he's saying, these are your servants, your people. Right? You redeem them. Be attentive to our prayers. He's just simply in, in, in the, in, and he did just confess the sin of his people, right? So we see something going on here, very covenantal. And it just got me to thinking, how do we think in terms of praying when it comes to the new covenant? And maybe to give us a little guidance, just pop over to Hebrews 8. I was thinking, where's a good place to summarize the new covenant? This is as good a place as any. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8 verse 8, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one of his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their sins, <coughs> towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, or is becoming obsolete and growing old, is ready to vanish away. So, and, and we Gentiles were grafted into that covenant, Okay, so now, now pray something from that covenant. Pray something of that covenant. What, would the, what, what might that look like? When would we have occasion to pray in such a way that we're just mindful of God's covenant with us in Christ? Don't you love these little challenges? When it seems like you're drifting away. Yeah, so, so take it away. So, so how's that prayer going to sound? No, because I going I think you're onto it, something. Um, Lord, you promised to never leave me or forsake me, and mm-hmm. so you know, to draw
1: me back.
0: Yeah, yeah. Lord, I know that I have struggled. I, I, I have, I've fallen in this here again, but I know also that the blood of Jesus Christ, your Son, continues to cleanse me of all sin. You know, you, you, your word to me, your promise to me is that it's your good pleasure to give me the kingdom. All these things that come with, what did Jesus talk about when he talked about the kingdom? Pray that way. How do I know it's effective? Because Nehemiah did it. It was very effective. Right? Don't be afraid to pray that. I mean, when I say don't be afraid, use your head, dig into the God's word and what he says about what our new covenant is like because we're, even, even to ask the question. So I went ahead and read from Hebrews 8, but if someone were to come up to ask you, what is the new covenant? Well, I think you might, many of us might be able to say, well, the, Jesus said, this is my cup, the new covenant in my blood. You know, it's shed for the remission. And you'd be able to talk about, God has made a covenant that people that come to Him through Jesus Christ, okay, sin is dealt with, the power of sin is killed, your own sins are dealt with, you'll be reconciled to God, okay? And, and, and so you're no longer a slave of sin, you're no longer under sin's dominion, you're no under, you're not under any law. We never were under the Mosaic Law, so that doesn't apply to us in quite the same way, because you and I were never under the Mosaic Law. So, uh, but think through it and pray through those things. That's, that's healthy. <clears throat> then over in chapter two, we see a little lesson here in pray before you speak. Right? Kind of like a think before you speak. And Todd, this is what you reminded me of a few minutes ago, because he was talking about his experience. He was hanging out at a bar getting hammered with, uh, <laughs> Rejoicing over the week, last couple of days and listening to the conversation of these people. <laughs> and uh, and, and, uh, and and he, he wasn't sure, but the, he was listening to this secular conversation going on in all these ways and roads it was taken and made a short little prayer. Lord, you know, if you want me in, put, put me in the game, so to speak. And immediately almost something happened with a bystander said, hey, Todd, come here, we need you. And that's a similar thing going on here, right so uh verse four, so after the king says this 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 is a sadness of heart when he sees that nehemiah's countenance is down, and he knows this is significant, he knows enough about Nehemiah to know this is not Nehemiah, something's going on with him, right, and so he gives this quick little prayer, right he just says this quick little prayer, so I pray to the god of heaven right just just a, just a whatever that little prayer was. And, and this was answered in the positive, right? So just this way of acknowledging the sovereignty of God before he goes about to give an answer, even in that situation. And you see this repeated throughout this memoir of Nehemiah. He is constantly doing these little sentence prayers, these quick little prayers before he says something, after he does something, as a reminder to God. He's constantly doing this. And I think it's a good, uh, it's, it's instructional for us to, we, to do likewise. Okay? And he got the positive answer. The king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. But again, it's not an assumption by Nehemiah. He prays. He prays. Praying is walking with God, you know? Praying is walking with God. And and, and immediately there's resistance, right? So this is going to happen, goes to Jerusalem, and immediately there's resistance from Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. Okay? Accusing them of rebelling against the king over there in, in verse 20 of chapter 2. Right? And then Nehemiah replies to them, he says, The God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. You have no portion or right claim in Jerusalem because they were coming along just trying to get in the
1: action. Okay? If you think about that, Pat, yes. there's always opposition when God is willing to raise his hand yep. in grace.
0: Yep.
1: Always um, opposition.
0: Yeah, that, that this continues to come up wrote this book as well, that same thing. Uh, where sin abounds, grace all the more, and at the same time, where God's grace is, there's gonna be something coming up against it, you know? Where grace abounds, sin is gonna show up. It's not gonna abound all the more, but it's gonna show up. Over in uh, chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, he says, Hear our God, for we are despised. Right? This is, this is after they mocked him, I said, yeah! Tobias said, a fox will knock this wall over, you know what I mean? Good wind will take this down. And so once again, here's Nehemiah. Here, O oh our God, for we are despised, turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Eh? That, that's 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 pretty hard prayer. That's an imprecatory
1: Well that doesn't sound very Christian, too. yeah. <laughs> Love thy neighbor and thyself?
0: What's up with that? Well, you got to remember too in the Old Covenant, and it's a good point, in the Old Covenant, you're talking about a a covenant of curse, cursing and blessing, cursing and blessing. Do this and live, do this and die, do this and... This this was something else that was in there. So this was in his... If you're raised that way, and and you know that the covenant is a covenant of blessing and cursing, it would seem like a natural to give out that sort of imprecatory response to something they're doing to oppress God's people. Yes. Plus they also... They thought that
1: their gods were more powerful yeah. than the gods. Yep, that's true and too. I think that's
0: another reason. Yep. They yeah, good point. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders, which is it? I mean, these are the people that are coming to put up this wall, this important wall that God has. So, it's like some of those imprecatory Psalms, you know, may their children be dashed against rocks, you know. You know, again, the thought that, you know, those kids are gonna, these, these kids are ammonites or whatever, they're gonna grow up to oppress and kill and it's just, it's hard to put ourselves in that mindset, right? It's hard to think of what that must have been like because we don't know anything like that, right? We know a little bit, we know a little bit about how, like in our own culture now, so many people are just getting away with more and more crime, you know? Now, when those things become part of your natural, those things become part of the fabric of your everyday life, it's going to affect the way your world. It's going to affect your worldview. Yeah. So, um, and then uh, Nehemiah rallies the people over in verse fourteen, uh, where he says, "Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, in your homes. Okay, get ready to fight. God's God is for us. Goodness, again, another theme that shows up." In the Old Testament, God is going to fight our battles for us. The victory belongs to God. But by all means, and trust in God and not in your own power and your own horses and all those things, right? So this is the mindset of someone that's 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 raised and steeped in old covenant, who wants to see the covenant come to fruition, who wants to see it fulfilled, who's thinking in these ways all the time. Dealing with the people who are not yet thinking that way. Because remember the exiles have been away from good teaching for seventy years at least. And it's been even longer than that. I mean, the exile has been seven years, but they've been away from feasts and Passovers and all that stuff for eight for, for for years and years and years and years. You remember that Josiah had re, uh, brought some reforms, and it was years and years and years before that had happened. So the the structural, the foundational rituals and practices that God put in place had been so neglected, like the walls, like the house of God. That it's difficult to rebuild these things. Because these things are happening on a similar track. <laughs> the spiritual condition of the people and the land and the buildings and the walls that, that go along with the, um, the plan that God had to have those things be knit together in such a way that their spiritual life is tied into the physical land and everything. Yes, Mark? Uh, <coughs>
1: interesting. I was just, I was reading the Benedict option this week and there's a section that talks about the recommend, his recommendation. That churches return to a more liturgical uh, worship style. Hmm. There's, his, his, his observation is that a liturgical worship style is uh, it's something that brings everybody together in a sort of a repetitive, continuous um, you know, ritual that yep. uh, builds that 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 those uh, recommendations
0: or those uh, ties among us. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously you see that in the Roman Catholic Church. You see that in some of the Eastern churches. Yeah. You have a calendar year. The scriptures are read at a certain time in a certain way. The festivals, the feasts, and all that stuff that they have, similar in some ways to the way they did things in Judaism. And maybe there's some benefit to some of that. Well, it,
1: uh, his take on this is that if it's all very loose and, you know, Great variety of things going on that aren't aren't repetitive in a, in a certain way. I don't think it has to be uh, like the Catholic Church where they have a lot of liturgical mm-hmm. stuff going on. Mm-hmm. But some of it has to be valuable in that it uh, brings a similar structure to the worship service every week, mm-hmm. and it builds a, uh, a, a continuum. I think of a connection from one service to another.
0: Oh, well, yeah, and to some extent, you know, our church certainly. This thing certain people expect. You expect things to be done a certain way. How do I know that? Because there have been times when I flip things around a little bit. <laughs> People are like, what are you doing? <laughs> you can't do the collection at the end of the service. You know, you, you can't do, you can't do the Lord's Supper after the sermon. You have to do it before. I mean, the Lord's Supper is the high part of the day. It's the high part of Sunday. You can't. Somebody actually came up to me once after I did that because one of the times that I was preaching on the Lord's Supper, I preached the Lord's Supper. I mean, I preached first, then did the Lord's Supper. Someone called me out on it afterwards, uh, and I was, and I said. You're missing the whole point, you know. Yeah. The whole point is, is building up to what this whole supper is about. That sermon was is designed and intended to to bring you to a place where that thing has real meaning, additional meaning. It's not, I mean, if you if you can give praise and worship and, 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 and all that before the Lord's Supper, why is it not okay to, to hear from the Word of God first before the Lord's Supper? And so it's just that person's way of thinking this is the way it should be and it means more to me this way and all that. And, I don't want to dismiss that. I'm glad it means something to you, but it certainly isn't in error to do it differently. Anyway, so, yeah. Gary, I thought you had a a comment. Uh, You start to get an an idea that Nehemiah is a man that lives as if he actually believes God is sovereign. Nehemiah lives a life of somebody that believes in the sovereignty of God. Right? He really is. And so into chapters 4 and 5, uh, we find out that Nehemiah has half the servants in, in, in response to these attacks and everything. Nehemiah has half the servants armed and ready for battle and the other half building the wall and every man kept his weapon at his right hand. And yet says, our God will fight for us. So we're armed, we're prepared and we're ready and his words are, our God will fight for us. Okay? Because they had all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and it caused confusion. And as it says in verse 9 or 4, we pray to our God and set a God as protection against them that day and night. They prayed and they did something. <laughs> Knowing that the protections that they were going to afford, and again, in the setting that they're in, it's a history of war, it's a history of battle, it's a history of fighting. But it's got to be that God is going to fight our war for us. And we're just going to sort of do what He tells us to do. And it really is, is that simple. And and now we begin to see also, as we get into chapter 5, a number of the reforms that Nehemiah brings about. Again. Why? Because he sees the anti-covenantal lifestyle of these people who have forgotten a lot, if they ever even knew it, right? So in verse 15 of chapter 5, uh, so, let me get, I'm sorry, back up a little bit. The Jews were, he comes to find out the Jews were charging interest to Jews, and some sons and daughters were being enslaved. See, this is what he finds out is going on in there. And so this oppression has happened. And we know, again, going all the way back, God has always been against mistreatment. He's always again been against oppression. He's always been concerned with justice. Justice shows up throughout Scripture all the time, right? God is a... Is a he says... So many places he talks about justice. Justice, justice, justice. Real justice, right? And what is the reason? What is the reason? uh And so... The reason for obedience. Why Why should we be doing the things that are in keeping with what God... He says over in verse 9, he says, So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. This is what he's saying to the people doing. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies? What a great thing to say. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God, why? So as to prevent the taunts of the nations... Our enemies. Why? Because we're God's people, and if we're taunting, if we're marked in that way because of what we're doing, then our God is. We see, we'll consistently see this such a tight, tight thing that Nehemiah sees between God and His people—a special bond—and the, the the way that the interplay of their lives, the way that one thing speaks of the other thing. Uh, it, it reminds me of Paul a little bit, saying, "Because of you, the name of the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles." The name of. The, Verse 15. Well, so, so the people commit to forsaking those actions. And, and, and then we see how Nehemiah has his own way of setting examples. In verse 15. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. So even the servants of the last governors lorded it over the people. Not just the governors, but his servants. He says, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. That's why Nehemiah didn't do that. What is, what is the fear of God? How would you describe the fear of God? Reverence. I'm sorry.
1: Reverence.
0: Reverence, definitely, yep. Yeah. An
1: it, understanding of how finite you are.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh,
1: in a sense, uh, realizing there's guardrails. Yes. You don't breach those.
0: Yeah. So there's a sort of a respect for what we know to be true about God. Um, somebody once described, this isn't totally accurate, but it helps a little bit. I had that written down. The biblical meaning of the fear of the Lord is silent wonder, radical amazement, affectionate awe at the infinite goodness of God. Uh, another place, I might have shared this recently, I've read is uh, storm chasers. Did I share that analogy with you? You know how storm chasers have a, they have a fear of that tornado, but they still want to chase it. They still want to get close to it and film it. They don't want to get too close. They know that that thing could. They know the power of that thing. So it's like you're in awe of it, but it's also so powerful that it just anything with that degree of power should naturally cause some degree of, of, of fear in you, some some reaction that says, "Whoa, this thing is way bigger than me, right?" And, and and certainly Nehemiah has that sense about God. I'm not going to do that out of a fear of God.
1: I've always compared it to like a fire in a fireplace. Mm. Yes, that's has, another good one. It's that beauty. Yes. Uh, and in that beauty, you're drawn closer to it. Yes. If you get too close to
0: it, you get burned. Yeah, that's right. It's beautiful to look at and be next to until a cinder lands on your sweater and burns a hole in it, right? <laughs> so, yeah, fear is that it, it, it is a sense of awe and power and reverence, the power. And also fearful knowing that you should be afraid of that. That's the kind of power you should be afraid of, to not want to offend or to cross the wrong way or to get in its path. Right? Okay. We go into chapters 6 and 7 after the wall is finished. Uh, there's another conspiracy to entrap and ruin Nehemiah. And they again accuse him and the Jews of, of attempting to rebel. You want to rebel against the king. Okay, so it's the same thing they keep trying. I don't know why they keep trying. It's not working. But, yeah. stupid is as stupid does. <laughs> it's like, and we see the response over in verses 8 and 9. Um, Oh well, this was um, uh, they perceived that this work had been done, accomplished with the help of our God, and I must be looking at chapter. Hold on, I must be looking at chapter. eight, nine, verse six. Yeah, I love that response. That was like
1: the greatest response ever. You're just making
0: that up out <laughs> of your head. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why I put that particular verse down. I, I just don't know. I know over in verse. I know over in verse. Uh, I know over in verse 14. He says, and so I guess it probably 8 and 9 is in the same chapter, still in, in verse 6, where he says, No such things as you say have been done, for you're inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands were dropped from the work, and it will be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Okay, so there's another one of those little prayers. So that's where I was still ch- stuck in chapter 6, sorry. And remember Tobiah and Sanballat, Oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Remember them, Lord. Let's not remember them for good, right? So in chapter 7, we get into the genealogies, which are extremely boring. There's names and numbers of people there, right? We've run into uh, genealogies in other places, and by and large, again, they're very boring to us, (coughs) some cool names, uh, but you find out a lot of things in there. But more than anything else, the, the real important thing to the Jews was that these ge- genealogies were a source of encouragement and comfort because they demonstrate by the the, the, the uh, names of all these people that were coming up, and uh, these names would mean something to these Israelites that God kept His covenant faithfulness over generations and generations and generations. Okay, um, and so. It, and it also served to direct as to who can serve as a priest and partake in the most holy food. So this, these genealogies are important. Mm-hmm. This is the who, what, when, where, and what did they do. There are singers, there's gatekeepers, these people will do this, these people do that. These names were going to carry up forward as well. Again, giving people that connection across, across, we, we, we do this with sort of, you know, ancestry.com. We think it's neat to look up and find out, you know, wow, where did I come from? How much of me is Scandinavian? How much of me is, you know, Where did this go? How much of me is this? How much of me is that? We'd like to find out what we have in common with so many people. You know, it doesn't have that kind of meaning to us. Like, it doesn't give us hope and comfort. I mean, I don't take a lot of comfort knowing that my forebears came over from Scandinavia and England, and my, in 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 some Scottish in my background, and a few French, and they came over like many of ours did to northern Canada and fur trappers and all that stuff. Doesn't mean a whole lot to me. Doesn't mean much at all. Although if I found out there was Native American in me to a significant degree, that would encourage me to get college, uh, reimbursement and, yeah. and home loan and I would, I would take it, I would I would, I would, I would jump all over that. Yeah, I would be all over that, so. So the Mosaic Code is still enforced. The exiles had to learn this, okay? Nehemiah's actions, like a wall, proceed from this distinction between those who are and who are not God's people. He's gonna continue now to tell them who, what you do, why you do it. You go over to chapter 8. Um, with Ezra and Nehemiah, scripture was elevated to a new level of authority and power. This dominant role of scripture continued in both Judaism and Christianity. All right, that's in, the, in their book, Arnold and Bayer's book, Encountering the Old Testament. Okay, And that is what's going on here in chapters 8 and chapter 9. And we really get a sense of connection to the old people of God when we see the role that scripture played in their lives and in our lives. It really struck me as I was studying that I don't think ever have I felt a connection to the Old Testament saints in the way that I do when I consider what the Scripture meant to them. That's where we find our real commonality. That's where I find a real sense of bond with them, right? It really got my attention. God got my attention by His Word, right? Uh, in my, my mind, in my heart. God took me into the Scripture. It's like I was where I was in life. I stumbled into a Baptist church, and suddenly God took me into the Scripture. He's like... It's like we went into the book, you know, those, some of those stories you might have seen where people actually go into a book. Mm -hmm. There was a series of those, but, and he was just revealing himself to me in new depths, creating this, the sense of awe. It was like we were spending time together one on one. That's what scripture was like for me when I first started reading, couldn't put it down. And he was welcoming me that, that sense of bringing me to the scripture, that sense of walking me through everything he was doing was his way of welcoming, welcoming me into his presence despite Everything I had done to abuse my privilege as a human image bearer of God, right? And and that's what's going on here. And I think we just really need to be so grateful for God's self revelation in Scripture and, and that He equips the church with teachers and preachers, uh, you know, men and women. This is God revealing Himself to them, and it's gonna have it's gonna cause a reaction in them. Just like just like God revealing Himself to us causes a reaction. So over in eight four, Ezra, Ezra the scribe, the scribe stood on a wooden platform. There's your biblical reference for the pulpit, right? And that they had made for that purpose, so they could be up and above all the people. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, "Amen, amen!" Lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads to worship, um, <clears throat> with their faces to the ground. Uh, and the Levites, uh, the name of them, the Levites helped the people to understand the law. Okay. While the people remained in their place, they read from the book from the law of God clearly clearly this is this is for all the preachers and teachers out there. They read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading okay mm-hmm. just like just like now we we, we read in the New Testament Ephesians that God gives some some pastors' teachers why for the equipping of the saints for ministry okay there's that continuity once again, okay, and then um over 7, 8, uh, I'm sorry, they, so so uh, Nehemiah and Ezra and the priests encouraged the people to make this a day of joy, a, a day to eat the fat, and, and to drink sweet wine, and sharing with those who have none. And they rejoiced, the text says, because they understood the words being declared. They rejoiced because they understood God was telling them, this is who I am, this is what I'm like, and the people rejoiced because they understood, because the men that God put in place to help them understand Help them to understand. And they rejoice. These people are coming out of exile. I haven't heard good, exegetical, sound Old Testament preaching. Even knew what it was like, and they're being exposed now. Many of them, for the first time, to the law of God again. And, and so it should be with us, you know? And, and they told them that because the people had been mourning and weeping. Why were the people mourning and weeping, do you suppose? I'm sorry? They couldn't measure up. Yeah, yeah, they, 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 I, th- that and I think they must have realized at that point, look at our history. Look at what we've done. We were in exile mm-hmm. and we had this with us all along. We had this the whole time, you know, but again, instead of letting them get bogged down in that sense of despair and, you know, well, you know, what have we done? And we've, he said, no, rejoice. Your God is with you. you. You know, your God is for you. Here, here you are, here in Jerusalem. The wall has been rebuilt. You know? And so, all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. That should be how we walk out of church on Sunday. If the preacher does his job right. <laughs> and if you're attentive, and these people were attentive, it is a, it is an interaction. Okay? There is an intersection of, of... And the people stood up to it There's something there, isn't there? You yeah. reverence for the Yes, Lord. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of why we do that. I mean, I guess, right? To some extent. I miss that sometimes. I think it, yeah, I think it does show, uh, why don't we, again, it goes a little bit to the whole liturgy thing in a way. You the liturgy of your body, disengagement of your body, uh, in, in worship. You know, that's one of the reasons I like playing that cajon I play up there. I mean, I'm up there you know, keeping rhythm and, 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 and a beat and all that stuff, but i'm worshiping, and I'm getting to do it with my whole body you know um, it should be a body thing we, we and, and so I think we make connections you know we make connections that way you know people uh, people that struggle with various mental illnesses, various like uh depressions anxiety disorders, bipolar stuff like that so one of the ways one of the reasons why uh, um, you know the the combination of of of, of um, spiritual, uh, medical, and um, and and, and, um, and counseling go together is is to help sort of rewire the brain. Just by exposing yourself to good things and and, and understanding things helps, and, and it 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 fills in those caverns in the brain where the water is flowing the wrong way mm-hmm. and producing helping to produce the wrong thoughts and everything else. Yeah.
1: Mark. Well, I was just thinking too that, um, especially for children, if, if we do something like uh with the Scriptures in red every time, then they understand. Yeah. That, that yep. something diff- it's at least different. Yep. And uh, it's a sign of respect, which, you know, obviously we're trying to teach it. Um And it, it, I think it makes an impression. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's something about standing to attention. It just is, you're right, it just is using your body for... To, to add to the to, it's using your body so that you can grasp the meaning. You're you're you're, hel- you're only helping yourself, right? We stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. Right. Everywhere you sure. go in public, we stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, yeah. but we don't stand when the gospel is read.
1: And and just to kind of finish that point, it's great to disrespect to me mm-hmm. when when the,
0: when the uh, anthem is played. Sure. Yep. So interesting! Interesting that that should come up. That wasn't in the plan, but that's that's the beauty of again the intercourse between the teacher and the student out there. Is you get some great input. So they celebrate the feast of booths, which hasn't been done in a long time. And what was the feast of booths all about? Yeah, that's right. So everyone built up these little structures on the roofs of their house. Uh, (coughs) yes, Beth. Uh, in Springfield, where my daughter lives. Once we know where they celebrate the booths, they got booths on their front line. Oh, do they really? And I, I was really shocked when I first saw her after you <coughs> were running about it. And hey. then to see
1: people do it. And then there were, there were people all dressed in black. The men go into their synagogue Interesting. buy a house It's quite different. Is it the same thing as when Joyce sleeps out in the tent after we have an argument? Yes. <laughs> yes, dwelling in
0: booths. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> later in the month. I
1: don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Same
0: <laughs> thing. Later in that same month
1: you should be the Yeah, right. I was going to say that. Uh,
0: for a quarter of the day, for a quarter of the day they read from the book of the law and for another quarter of the day they worshiped and confessed their sin, right? So the first thing they did was read from the book of the law. <laughs> and then for another quarter of the day, they worship and confess their sin. You see the order: <laughs> the word of God first, and then the response. Mm-hmm. You know, and it does the Scripture play a similar role in our lives today? And it does, doesn't it?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then there's a retelling God's actions from creation. This is just amazing. And uh, you didn't know, they
1: do this for days. I mean, I thought I didn't think it was
0: one day. No, no, this stuff goes on and on. You know, he's talking yeah, about would, he's like, talking about a month. Days. He's That's talking cool. about a month later. A month later, they would do this and they would do that. So yeah, I mean, we're going through this and and we're pointing out certain events. But this this was huge. I mean, this was huge. We're back in Jerusalem. The wall's been rebuilt. We got the law being read to us. We're eating it. I mean, it takes a lot. But when, when, you know, the ancient peoples when they did eating and rejoicing and all that, that was a long affair. I mean, when you. When you you think of all the places in the Scripture where they said, hey, come on, let's sit down. You know, what do you think about maybe we'll do this or that? Oh, I don't know, let's eat and stuff. and We'll talk about it tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and they'd eat some more. And the guy was like, well, i got to leave. Well, I don't know, just stick around for another meal. All right. And they just kept doing that all the time. That's what these people did all the time. They ate and thought about stuff. So. And, and then we get into this glorious, I love this. We just get into this glorious retelling over in chapter 9 of everything of God's actions from creation to His calling of Abraham to the slavery in Egypt to the Exodus to the giving of the law to the manna from heaven the water from the rock and the command to possess the land. They run through that whole history again. Just like you see Stephen do over in book of Acts. There's little places like this in scripture where you bump into this. And when you bump into it it's very meaningful. God is continuing to do what He was doing. And here we are. Right? <clears throat> I sometimes
1: see how we're so without any excuse. I mean, when you're in the Old Testament, not everybody had a school at home.
0: Right. Of no.
1: Right? Yeah, right. And, and here we have this book in such flourishing amounts that um, to to be able to run to it at a moment's notice and we are so fortunate and sometimes I think we squandered.
0: That I think definitely. Definitely we do. Um... We had seen uh, in chapter nine, uh after sort of uh the retelling of these different things, we come across a couple of things I think that are important as well. Uh over in verse um, sixteen he says, You're a God but uh, I'm sorry, but they and our fathers, after giving all this history of how God did everything he did, chapter nine, sixteen, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously, stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. But here we go again. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Going way back there to Exodus, and you did not forsake them, just like He said He wouldn't. Everything He's doing has to do with covenant. He's just so everything that's coming out of Him is is covenant. Uh, verses uh, uh, seventeen and nineteen. Um, you brought up out of Egypt; they had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Uh, so they ate and became fat and delighted themselves in your goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. Therefore, you gave them over to the hands of their enemies. Down to 33 to 36. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. You have kept the covenant, God, and we have not. You've done exactly as you said that you would do. And in verse 36, behold, we are slaves in our own land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit Behold, we are slaves. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents of the names of our princes, our Levites, and priests. So they're going to renew their covenant with God. Okay? They resolve the covenant with God once again and enter into a curse and oath agreement to observe all the laws and commandments. Again, the Mosaic covenant. And this is what they promise to do. They promise to not give their daughters or foreigners or to take daughters and sons from foreign nations. They promised not to make purchases on the Sabbath. They promised to forego the crops every seven years, because you're supposed to give the land a Sabbath rest. They promised to give a third shekel to the house of God for the showbread, the grain offerings, the burnt offerings, and to keep all the appointed feasts, and to bring in the first fruits, and, and the firstborn of their sons and their herd, The great mosaic reset, I call it. <laughs> right?
1: The
0: great mosaic reset you made me think, what, what things can we do to remind ourselves and one another of what God has done and to remind ourselves of the covenant we are in by God's sovereign election? We're going through a book in small group about preaching the gospel to yourself every day, you know? It's called The Gospel Primer for Christians. It's all about the importance of preaching the gospel to yourself every single day. What a difference that should make it will make in our lives if we live in that covenant and then, because uh, we got to wrap up as we get into 12 and 13, so chapter 11 through the first half of 12, you get more names of the leaders and the priests and the Levites and what their duties were as part of the Great Mosaic Reset. And then uh, some select texts about the dedication of the wall around Jerusalem. Then over in uh, 1227, uh, dedication in gladness with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals and harps and lyres. And verse 42, And the singer sang with Jeremiah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day, and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Doesn't get any better, right? Things are going great. Things are just going... actually. Ex- everything's wonderful again for this little remnant. It's, it's almost like a little microcosm of what God intended. And then things go a little wonky. <laughs> in chapter 13. So Nehemiah has to leave town for a little bit and go back to the king. When he returns, he discovers Eliashib the priest who was in charge of the chambers of the house of God actually gave that troublemaker Tobiah a room in the house of God because he was related to him. So Nehemiah comes in. <laughs> this Nehemiah is awesome. He just comes in and he throws all the furniture out of the guy's room. First thing he does, he just goes in the room and throws out all the furniture, Right? And then he discovers that the Levites and the Singers have not been given the portions of the tithes that they require, so they have to flee from their service in the house of God to go work in the fields. So Nehemiah fixes that. And he gets his, his little prayer over there in verse 14, where he says, after he does that, it says, Remember, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and for his service. He does that often. Remember me, God. Remember me, God. Why? Because he's in that blessing curse, and cursing covenant mindset. Remember me for the good that I have done. I'm keeping the covenant. I'm keeping my covenant with you, God. And, and I love to do it. Uh, and then he finds out that people are violating the Sabbath by working and also allowing other traders to come into the city from outside in violation of the promise, right? Over in verse 18. He says, Did not, it, 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 didn't your fathers act this way? Did not our God bring all this disaster on the city? And now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning a <laughs> Sabbath? And so he stations guards and, at, at, the, at the gates so that nobody can come in on the Sabbath. And so the merchants come up and they just show out and hang outside the doors of the Sabbath anyway. Nehemiah says, keep doing it, I'm going to beat the hell out of you. You come back here again, I'm going to lay hands on you. Right? And then another little prayer in verse 22, right, where he says, remember this also in my favor, oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Why? Because he's starting to see things, the people are acting up. Remember me, God, okay? I'm keeping your covenant here. And then he discovers that some of them are intermarrying with foreigners and that the Ammonites and the Moabites who had strictly forbidden and the people had promised not to be as part of their great Mosaic reset, even some of their children couldn't even speak the language of Judah. So Nehemiah absorbs, he he looks at all of this and he unloads with this classic Randy Valandry: what the heck, man? (laughs) And he just starts tooling on people. He starts beating the crap out of people. He starts pulling their hair out. He just starts beating people up, right? Why? This is a blessing and cursing covenant. He just lets loose on them, right? I confronted them, cursed them, and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. This guy's a wild man, right? Um, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Nevertheless, foreign women made him to sin. He was the greatest, one of the great kings. Okay, and then in verse twenty-nine, you see, remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and Levites. It closes right here in thirty. Says, "Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign. I establish the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I pro- and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for first fruits." And he closes with that same little, "Remember, remember me, oh my God, for good." Right. So, Nehemiah, a man very zealous, right? What what do we take away? What do we box up and take home for leftovers? Well, we've seen God's righteous rule of his kingdom. We've seen the response of man to that rule. And we've seen God's response to man's response. God always has image-bearing men and women filled with zeal for God and his people. Always, in every age, through whom God establishes his kingdom. And he always will, till Christ returns. Through whom he rallies others to holiness so that they too will bear God's image according to the Genesis Plan A prerogative for humans to be image bearers of God. None of that's changed. That's what humans are supposed to be. We're going to be that. Okay? Uh, we need to keep that sort of same prayer magazine or prayer clip fully loaded always, right? So that we can fire off those little prayer bullets like Nehemiah did all the time. Right? Nehemiah was armed and dangerous to covenant breakers. And then that there are spiritual boundaries we must maintain. We all have in place. The Holy Spirit, in, in a sense, is, is our Nehemiah, right? Always reminding us of the boundaries and the impact of those in our Christian mission, mission and uh, discipleship. And we leave Nehemiah there. We're going to have, I'm going to talk to uh, Todd and others after. To see who's going to take up with Job. That's going to be the next book that we do. So um, let's close in prayer so that we can head up. I'm going to head up and get into music. So. Uh, Who's going to pray for us? Uh, I'll pray. Lord, thank you for our time. Thank you that we have worship to go to now, in both this and in the worship service. Uh, we pray that your word would have its right effect upon us, establishing and reinforcing those healthy spiritual boundaries, giving us cause to rejoice with one another, Lord, and eat together in gladness. Amen. Amen.